The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. <clears throat> okay, Brahma Viharas. I was supposed to give this talk last April, then I got sick. And as, as always, with age, things get better. Um, <laughs> I rethought the talk I was going to give, and I was rethinking it until last night. So if I, you see me shuffling around among my papers, it's a sign that I've reorganized the material. Oh. So, the Brahma Viharas, the word Vihara in Pali means dwelling, and it can also mean an attitude, like the kind of attitude you just stay in the mind, or that you, in which you stay in your mind. Um, it's often used also in terms of your concentration topic. Where is your mind dwelling right now in concentration? So you're trying to develop, not so much thinking about the Brahmas, but you're trying to develop the same states of mind that would make a person a Brahma. Now Brahma is a very high level of Deva. Um, they get up there because they've been developing unlimited, limitless thoughts of goodwill, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Um, the Pali terms are metta, garuna, mudita, unubeka. Metta, or goodwill, is a wish for happiness. Um, we'll get into a lot, a lot more in detail on this later during the day. Um, it's related to the other two, garuna, garuna and mudita. Um, garuna is basically what metta feels when you see someone who's suffering, or who's acting in ways that are going to cause suffering, suffering. You feel compassion for them, and if possible, you want to help alleviate the suffering or put an end to it. Um, as far as empathetic joy is when you see somebody who's happy. You're happy for them. You're not resentful of their happiness. You don't feel threatened by their happiness. Um, however, you begin to realize there's some cases where not everybody is going to be happy, no matter how much you wish for it. And that's where you have to develop equanimity, realizing that there's some things that are beyond your control. I mean, some, some of the situations that people are in are the result of their past karma, and you can't wish their past, past, past bad karma away. You've got to say, okay, this is something I can't touch. However, you can work on the element of what you can do in the present moment. So equanimity is not there as kind of the final Brahma-Vihara to which all the others go. It's the one that keeps the others in balance. And it's what enables you to focus your attention on areas where you can be of help, where, where your metta really can make a difference in terms of somebody's ha happiness, your own happiness or that of others. What makes these Brahma-viharas is that they are limitless, both in the sense that you are able to wish them for all beings and you're able to draw on any of them at any time, any situation, when it's appropriate. Now, it's, some people say that you know, these are natural, innate qualities of the mind. We'll get that into a minute into that in a minute. But um, the idea of having these attitudes for everyone, whenever appropriate, that needs training. We've got to work on that. Um, because it's, how many little kids do you know start out with goodwill for all beings? <laughs> they have goodwill for one being in particular. Um, <laughs> and some people don't outgrow that. Um, <laughs> so well, the training here is learning how to understand these qualities and be able to draw on them at all times, whenever you need them. Um, with metta in particular, there's, um, there are a lot of misunderstandings. I thought at the beginning of the day I'd go out and list seven misunderstandings about metta, because um, one of the Buddha's 
techniques of teaching was that if he was going to present something, he first would tell you what he was not talking about or what he was not saying. So it would be very clear that you don't take what you've learned him say and just try to mix it with somebody else, what someone else is saying. He says, there are distinct differences here. Years back, in, when I was teaching down in Southern California, this one group, I'd been teaching them for several years, and one woman came up to me at the end of one retreat and said, you know, I think I understand what you're saying. And she sort of repeated the message I've been giving that day, and I said, yeah. She said, I've been hearing this for years and I haven't heard it. Because she, she'd come from another tradition and she was just trying to mix my teachings in with this other tradition. And, really, and thinking basically, well, you know, Tanjaf is not all that articulate, so he doesn't know what he's saying, but this, he really means this over here. And finally, you know, it was getting through to it. Yes, I meant something different. So let's start out with some differences. We do have this sense of, especially with metta, that we have this innate understanding, because it's part of our culture. And this is very typical in all kind of cross-cultural contexts. Every now and then you come across something you see in another culture and say, okay, a lot of other things in this culture are foreign, but this I understand. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine, um, went to Korea on the same program that took me to Thailand to teach English. And before she went, she went around and just took lots of pictures of common American scenes, going into a supermarket, going into a dry, a dry cleaner, all these other places that just show, give people an idea of what life in America is like when you're learning English. And one of the places she went to take pictures was at Howard Johnson's restaurant. And there was a couple of hippies sitting at the, at the counter and other things that you see in a Howard Johnson's restaurant. And she was pointing out the different things that she'd taken pictures of. And she finally got to a straw dispenser. And she said, okay, what do you think this dispenses? And the poor kids who had been seeing all this very foreign stuff in the restaurant, suddenly their eyes lit up and they said, chopsticks. <laughs> <laughs> and she had to stifle a laugh. She said, no, straws. <laughs> and so we have this same problem when we come to Meta. We think we understand it, and we fit it into our cultural background, which is largely shaped by Christianity and its teachings on love. And that's the first misunderstanding that Meta is love or loving kindness. Um, is, Polly actually has another word for love, which is Bema, as in Bema children. That's what her name means, is love. Um, and Bema is a quality that Buddha is, has strong reservations about because it tends to be partial. There are certain people you love based on the people you love, you are either going to love other people or hate other people. There are certain people you hate, and based on that, there are certain people you're going to love around that hatred. He talks about how if there's someone you love, other people are kind to that person, you're going to love those people. Other people are cruel to that person, you're going to hate them. Somebody you hate, people who are kind to that person, you're going to hate. People who are nasty to that person, you're going to love. We see this all around us. So the Buddha is not recommending love, and you look at the metta phrases that he has. One particular is that um, may all beings be happy, and this is a this is a phrase that metta phrase that monks are supposed to chant when they go into the forest, and they're going to be you know, surrounded by all kinds of unfriendly beings. Says, "May they all be happy. May they all go away." <laughs> you find happiness your way. I'll find happiness my way. We'll keep each other apart. My teacher told a story one time about a snake moved into his room one time in Thailand. And he decided to take this as a test for his goodwill for snakes and his ability and his patience and his endurance. And so for three days the snake was there in the room. Every time he opened the door the snake would go behind a cabinet. And um, the, the third night he finally sat and meditated and said, look, it's not that I have any ill will for you, it's just that you're a snake, I'm a human being, we don't understand each other's language. Um, 
It's very easy for there to be a misunderstanding. There are lots of places out there. <laughs> lots of places out there in the woods where you could be happy. And the snake left, you know. <laughs> so, metta is goodwill, i.e. a wish for happiness. It's not love. We're not expected to love or even like the people for whom we um, feel metta. Second misunderstanding is that it's expressed by being kind and uncritical. Now, you, it is expressed in kindness many times, but there are ways you can be critical and sh and, and as a way of expressing your goodwill for other beings. The Buddha gives an example. You know, suppose a child has gotten a piece of a sharp object in his mouth. What are you going to do? He asked this one prince who has his baby child sitting on his, on his lap. He said, well, I'll take his head in one hand, I'll take with my finger and go into the mouth, get the sharp object out, even if it means drawing blood. Because if I don't get it out, it's going to be, it's going to be worse. So there are, and the Buddha said in the same way, there are times when he would have to say unpleasant things out of goodwill for, to people. So it is, it's not necessary that when you have metta for others that you are always uncritical of what they're doing. And sometimes you have to speak harshly with people, and this is what the raising children is all about. Another misunderstanding is that it's a quality of the heart and not of the head. In other words, it's, it's an expression of an emotion and doesn't require too much thought. We'll be going over today, though, that the fact that the Buddha said there's a lot you have to think about. One, in the Buddhist traditions, they don't make a clear distinction between your head and your heart to begin with. Um, your emotions have their reasons, and your reasons have their emotions. And even though we sometimes think that we have feelings first and then we articulate them, sometimes we have particular ideas or particular ways of verbalizing things to ourselves that will immediately trigger a certain kind of feeling. So the head and the heart have to go together. They work together. When we talk about the Buddha's analysis of what it means to fabricate your experience, you'll see it's both emotional and mental. So there's no clear distinction between the two. And it means that you do have to think very carefully about, well, what does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to wish for someone else's happiness? This requires a certain understanding of causality. A fourth misunderstanding is that this quality of the heart is innate. We all have goodwill innately within us. Um, the Buddha doesn't present them as innate. There are things that you have to determine, and this has to do with his view of the mind, which we'll be getting into more detail in a little bit. But basically, your mind is capable of anything. We've seen this, again, all around us. We're not innately good, we're not innately bad. We don't innately love other beings, we don't innately hate them. These are choices that we make. And, it's, and if, you're, if we're working with metta, it's something you have to make a determination. You're really going to stick with this and develop this as a conscious, um, consciously developed quality of the mind. He calls it a determination. It's a determination is something that requires your discernment, it requires an attitude of truthfulness, i.e. sticking truly to the determination. There are things you're going to have to give up if you're going to stick with this determination. And you have to maintain a sense of calm as you see yourself giving things up. It's realizing that you've got it, there's a greater good that's being served. A fifth misunderstanding is that when we're expressing thoughts of goodwill, may all beings be happy, that it's a kind of prayer in hopes that all beings will be happy. You know? And that somehow the Buddha has some um, pretty choice words to say about prayer. As he's talking about, he was talking to a Brahmin one time about the, the good that your descendants can do for you after you've passed away. And he says, you know, you really can't depend on their prayers to sort of move you up in the, 
in the cosmos after you passed away. He says it's like a group of people standing around a pool and there's a rock in the pool. And they pray as they circumambulate around the pool, say, may this rock rise up out of the water. May this rock rise up out of the water. Is it going to rise up out of the water? No, it's not. Or if there's oil floating on the top of the water and they hate it, and they say, can this oil sink? <laughs> the oil's not going to sink. What we are expressing here is not so much a prayer, and we don't even expect that the entire world will be happy. Um, what we're doing is establishing motivation as a basis for our actions. Do we want our actions to cause happiness, or do we want our, or be conducive to happiness, or do we want our actions to cause pain? And we're looking primarily at developing our motivation as a basis for our actions, both as we deal with things coming in and as we go outward and express our actions in, in relationship to other people. A sixth misunderstanding is that we develop the Brahma-Viharas as a whole, including metta, for other people because they deserve it. Um, now, coming from the Christian context, that was, we de they deserve it because they are God's creatures. Sometimes in the Buddhist context you hear it said that either that because other beings have Buddha nature you should have goodwill for them, or because we are all one we should have goodwill for one another. Um, in the actual teachings that the Buddha gives, there's no question of anybody deserving goodwill. Again, it's you need to develop this quality, this attitude towards others because you want to learn how to trust yourself in your dealings with other people. So it's not a question of whether you deserve it or they deserve it. It's a question of you need th this quality in order to be able to more, more secure in developing your um, intentions and interactions with other people. And finally, the seventh misunderstanding is that the practice of metta is a complete path. All you have to do is develop metta and it will take you all the way to awakening. Like the Beatles said, all you need is love. And the Buddha says, no, it's, it's, the Brahma-viharas are topics for concentration. They are also attitudes you deal, develop to nourish your precepts, to nourish your virtue. But that concentration does have to have other qualities added to it, or other meditation topics added to it, if it's going to be effective. And the practice of metta itself has to be based on, your, on other qualities that you've developed, being easy to instruct, um, having virtue. That metta sutta that, we, that everybody likes. That's a pretty high bar for, if you're going to practice metta, this is how you have to lead your life. You don't just sit down, it's like a goodwill for everybody in the midst of whatever else you're doing. Um, the Buddha also said, okay, these, these qualities, if they are developed and you don't fall for them, they can take you to the Brahma world. But the Brahma world is not nirvana. Uh, a lot of the scholarly confusion around this is right at that point. Um, as he said, the Brahmas still have a very strong sense of identity, and some of them have very wrong views couple cases where the Buddha had to go to a Brahma world and straighten out a couple Brahmas. <laughs> so even though, the Brahma, even though these Brahma-viharas can take you to that level, you're not going to stay there permanently and there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Um, so those are seven of the misunderstandings you, you ordinarily hear about metta. One is that it's love. Secondly, it's expressed by being gentle and uncritical. Um, third is the quality of the heart, not of the head. Fourth, that it's an innate quality of the heart. Fifth is it's a type of prayer. Sixth is that you sp spread these good these Brahma-viharas, including metta, to others because they deserve it. There's no question of deserving at all, or not deserving. And finally, that, that it's metta is a complete path. Now, none of these are 
the way the Buddha uses the teaching. Um, today we're going to be focusing more on seeing the Brahma Viharas within the Buddhist context um, as tools for awakening. Uh, but first I'd like to stop and ask if there are any questions about any of those seven points. Yes. <coughs> so um, on the seventh point, we've had uh, John Peacock here, and I'm also thinking about um, what the Buddha thought by... Um, Richard Gombrich, um, and they both make strong arguments that the metta can be a complete path. Now, it, it sounded like you were qualifying that a little bit, that it could be a complete path if you incorporate these other factors well, of mind. That's the difference between a complete path and an incomplete path. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it, you don't, for example, you don't have to cultivate um, you know, satipatthana, uh, maybe not jhana, you know, they, they, I don't know if they go into that level of, of detail, but um, they do make this distinction that, you know, is controversial and it sounds like you're, you have a, an opinion that um, they aren't. It's not a just an opinion. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, they base their arguments on two, th two passages in the canon. One is the Metta Sutta, and um, at the end you, there are certain practices that are, that are talked about at the end of the sutta, which are actually in addition to the development of metta. Now, the way they present it, they say, if you develop metta, these things will just automatically happen. But there's nothing anywhere in the sutta that says that that's the case, and there's nothing anywhere outside that particular sutta that would indicate that. I mean, you, can, you can get into strong states of concentration, which would be jhana, based on, on metta. But you can't stop there. There's no case where the Buddha talks about just gaining jhana and that's it, that's all you have to do. That's one of the bases for their, their argument. The other basis for the argument is a passage where a group of Brahmins come to see the Buddha, actually two Brahmins come to see the Buddha, and um, they start talking on the, about the way to Brahma. How do you become one with Brahma? And um, they, you know, they tell the Buddha what their teacher said, and the Buddha says, you know, have their teachers ever met Brahma? Have they been there? No. And he said, this is like someone who's you know, building a staircase. And he said, where is the staircase going? It's going to this palace over here. Well, where is the palace? All I see is the staircase. You know? And then he goes on and says, do you want to know the way to Brahma? And he said, yes. And he teaches them the Brahma Viharas. Now, Richard Gombrich at that point says, the, the way to Brahma or Brahma world here is a synonym for nirvana. And then he bases the whole rest of his argument just on that equation. Now, there are many other passages in the canon where the Buddha says the Brahma world is an inferior attainment. The most dramatic one is where um, uh, Tananjani is dying, and Sariputta goes to see him. And they start talking, and Tananjani is a Brahmin, and so the Sariputta says, um, you know, would you like to become a Brahma? And he says, yes, I'd very much like to become a Brahmin. And so he teaches them the way there, and then Tananjani dies. And Sariputta goes back to see the Buddha, and the Buddha says, why did you leave him in an inferior attainment? There was more that could have been done. And there's another passage, and we'll be getting this, we'll be seeing this in the, later in the readings, where uh, Mahanama comes to see the Buddha, and says, you know, when you're away at the end of the rains retreat, we may have somebody dying here. What kind of advice do I give to the person who's dying? First piece of advice, the Buddha says, okay, Tell them you know, if, you have, if you're worried about your family or if you're worried about um, if you're worried about your family. First, it's worried about yourself. 
And he said, okay, wor your worries about yourself, the you know, central pleasures are going to leave, you have to put those aside. Worried about your family, you have to put that aside because your worries are not helping anybody right now. Um, if you're concerned about leaving behind human sensuality, remember there's better sensuality up there in the day house. <coughs> Set your mind on that. Okay, if he sets his mind on that, he said, okay, there's actually better than that. And it kind of takes him up the levels of the devas and finally gets him to a Brahma world. He says, okay, that's even better than the sensual devas, but Brahmas still have a strong sense of self-identity. And where the self-identity is going to be suffering, if you can abandon that, then you go beyond the Brahmas. And just as an aside, Trisco was doing an interview with Richard Gombrich a while back, and they asked me what kind of questions to ask him, and I said, ask him about this. The story where the Sariputta gets criticized for taking someone just to a Brahma world. And so they put the question in, the, you know, and it was one of those email interviews. He never answered the question. So. Question. Let's please. We have to move Mike around. Uh, Mike around. Uh, so can you um, explain a little bit the difference between um, head and heart, mental and emotional, and how that plays into, uh, you know, the path and the noble truths? Okay. Um, as I said earlier, in the Buddhist tradition, they don't draw a clear line between your head and your heart. In many languages, in Buddhist languages, it's the same word. Your heart and your mind are the same word, like in Thai, it's jit jai. And I don't understand in Tibetan, it's the same as well. And, and in Pali, jitta can either be translated as heart or mind, depending on the context. And particularly, um, when they talk about fabrication, how you shape your experience. There's an element of will in there, but there's also the way you think about things. That's one of the types of fabrication that will determine how you shape things and why you would want to shape them in a particular way. And so your will about things and your sort of emotional reaction toward things is going to be very much determined by your, by your thinking. How you see a situation, how you understand a situation. So it's not we come into the world with raw emotions. And this is an old issue they used to have in classical philosophy. You know, Plato was saying you have your reason here and you have your passions over here. And they're two separate things entirely. And the Stoics said, no, your passions have their reasons. Because otherwise reason wouldn't be able to have any influence on your passions at all, if they, were, if they didn't have any reasons. And this is one case where I think where the Stoics were right. So then, then the emotional... Um does have the, like a, a karmic connection with the, the mental. It's kind of right. Um, right. together. Right. And it, you might say basically it's, I mean, the intellectual side is basically your sense of, of cause and effect and how reason works. And then your heart is more about what you want out of life and what you, you know, where your desires go. And in Buddhism, they're, they're not radically separate. Just pass it down. Can you clarify um, among uh, Anatta, uh, Sakaya Didi, and Manas? Okay, Anatta, not self. It's an adjective, which means you see something and you tell yourself, okay, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. Um, Sakaya Didi is this view that. I create a sense of your self-identity, who you are, which you create around the five aggregates. You know, anatta is meant to be the, the cure for that. 
You see that I've identified with this and it's causing me suffering. Why am I holding on? It's basically a tool to let go. And as far as manas is the mind or the heart or the intellect, depending on the, the context. Um, again, that's to be viewed as not self. You know, in other words, you don't create, create, create a sense of identity around that. But you use it. You've got to use your mind. And so in certain parts of the path, and we'll be seeing this as we go through the material today, you have to develop a healthy sense of self. And the Buddha encourages that up to a point. And that's when you start letting go of some of these things. But you basically, the, the original applica early application of anatta is you've got, and I like to th use the image of a committee in your mind. There are certain committees and members in your mind that you don't want to identify with. You know they're unskillful. And so who are you going to use to gang up on those, if not your skillful committee members, which you identify with, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> and then when you've got the, everything cleared up, okay, then you don't need anybody, you know. <laughs> yes. um, what does it feel like to have metta? What does it feel like? Um, you mean the emotional side or the sort of experiential side as opposed to just the thoughts? So I, I think what, what I heard was a little bit of what it is not. Okay. In terms of it, a it's traditional you see, you see logical being, you definition, people, it, it, I'm you trying to understand what does it feel like. It feels like you see people and you don't want to harm them. There's a sense, okay, here's somebody I don't want to harm. And so there's that sense of, I guess you might say, tenderness and care around your dealings with other people. Now you can have some people you really despise, but you've got to have this, okay, I'm not going to do anything evil to this person. It doesn't mean you like these people. Because there are a lot of people out there who, you know, have not done much to, to make them likable. <laughs> but you can't have ill will for them. Now, the distinction between ill will is wanting to see them suffer. But you can, you can, you know, you can dislike what they're doing and say, okay, I want to see if we can stop what they're doing. But you don't want to have ill will for them. It's sort of an... Non-violence, but not conceptually, but feeling. It feels that you don't want to do violence to them. Although there are times when, you know, you have to shoot out their tires or something to stop them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. You move that the mic. The volume. Okay, you're you're in the dead spot in, in, of the sun. Okay. Okay. Um, a question about uh, number four, innate, mm -hmm. and um, what I'm about to, to say may actually be a more lexical difference and, and not so much a semantic difference. So um, so recently in, in psychology there's been a wave of, of um, arguing that kindness and compassion are evolutionary um, based. Mm -hmm. And some, some experiments with very young children, babies, mm -hmm. showing that there's a tendency to be kind and compassionate. Mm -hmm. So... Um, whole and, and, and that the way innate you, is used in, in, in that realm is uh, is a way to to um, to suggest that we're not inherently bad that there is there is some compassionate instinct. Okay. Uh, and the way you use it, I think, is still uh, um, commensurate with that because you you make it sure that, that it's a choice that we make. So I'm just trying to 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 make the. Okay, well, there's, there's, there's a very strong tradition in the West, you know, that comes through the Romantics and through um, 
Methodism and Pietism, and most Americans don't realize that you know American Buddhist scholars say that you know, the, the religion of America is Methodism, regardless of what your denomination is. In other words, that there's a certain innate goodness to people and a certain innate quality that they want to love other beings. Um, but you have to recommend, you have to recognize, okay, that is no more innate than your desire to harm other beings. I mean, there are these potentials that are there. But we have potentials of both kinds, and it's not the case that the goodwill is more innate than the ill will. That they both come, they can both are equally innate, if you want to talk about that as a potential. And in different circumstances, they're going to get developed in different ways. But there's this feeling that somehow deep down inside, there's you know, the real you is the one who feels compassion, or the real you is the one who feels goodwill. And the Buddha doesn't have that. That, that way of analyzing things. There, there, we have potentials in both ways. He's got a passage where he talks about how, you know, you see how variegated the animal world is. And he says, in terms of all the many, many, many species in the air, on land, and in the water, he says the human mind is, is more variegated than that. That it can create more variety than even all the species of the animals. So if you want to see innate as a potential, uh, out of many, one out of potential out of many, yes, I would agree with you there. But it's not your true nature. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, is this on? Hold it very close. Okay. I have no volume anyhow. Um, I'm very glad the person behind me who I couldn't see asked that question. I, I want to push you a little farther. Um, so you said that uh, metta is not an innate quality of mind. Mm -hmm. And my question to you would be, in the Pali Sutta tradition, are there any innate qualities of mind that are not produced by karma? No. Okay. It's all karma. Mm -hmm. Which gets to the next step in the talk. <clears throat> We're talking about wanting to look at the Brahma Viharas within the Buddhist context. Um, and the Buddhist context is formed by the teaching on karma, what you do, and the results of what you do. Now, the reason why it focuses on karma is because, as I was saying earlier, your mind has lots of potentials, and your mind is basically active. If we're going to talk about an innate quality of the mind, it's that the mind is active. It is not a passive recipient of things. You look at the Buddha's analysis for why there is suffering. It starts with ignorance, and from ignorance it goes to the process of what's called fabrication. Now, fabrication is an active way of shaping your experience. Um, essentially what we're doing is we're, we're hungry and we're looking for food. And, so we're on, and the activities of the mind tend to go in that direction. What kind of physical or emotional food are you going to be getting out of a particular experience? And if we don't like the experience that we're presented with, we're going to try to fix it. In the same way you get a raw piece of meat. You don't just eat the raw piece of meat. You cook it, you age it, <laughs> do all kinds of fancy things to it. Then it's edible, okay? And we, we approach experience in the same way. The experience comes to us, and the Buddha has an analysis where he talks about um, one, cause, the way causality works, is your present experience is composed of three, three things. One is the results of past actions. Secondly, your intentions right now, 
you know what you're intending. And then finally, or you should know, many of us don't, um, and then the results of your present intentions. All three of these things together go in to create a present experience. The Buddha now analyzes this in terms of the aggregates. With each aggregate you have a potential for a sense of form or a feeling or a perception or a thought fabrication or, or an act of consciousness. These, con these potentials come from your past, karma. Now the way you actually experience them as a feeling or a per perception has an element of fabrication in it. You, you shape these things into your experience. And in this, this process of fabrication is what's going to determine whether you're going to be feeling pleasure or pain out of a particular experience. I mean, just look at your body right now. You've got certain sensations in the body. Some of them are not pleasant or not, not, not actively unpleasant, but they're not, not really pleasant. Others are more pleasant. And you have the choice which ones you're going to focus on. And in making that choice, you can aggravate a really bad pain. Or you can learn how to deal with that pain so that you don't suffer. And it all depends on what you're bringing to the experience. So we're never presented with a totally raw, unmediated experience. We're out there shaping things all the time. And most of us do it out of ignorance, which is why we suffer from our, our desires for happiness. We think, we think that this, this meat is going to taste really good if we cook it, but then we overcook it. <laughs> Or we undercook it and get sick. Um, and then we decide meat's not good. I'm going to be a vegetarian. <laughs> and then you start getting dofu, and dofu ruins your thyroid. I mean, there are all kinds of things that can <laughs> 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 all kinds of things that can happen um, because we're all thinking we're going to do a good job of fixing this experience, and it's because we do it out of ignorance. We, we shape things in all kinds of ways. Sometimes having pleasure, sometimes finding happiness, and sometimes not. And so the path of practice that the Buddha is going to recommend to you is that you learn how to do this process with knowledge. You're aware of what you're doing, and you look at it in terms of the Four Noble Truths, i.e., is what I'm doing causing happiness, or, or leading to happiness, or is it causing suffering? Because so many times we're, we have other issues at that moment. And we have a certain preconceived notion about what happiness would be, or how it should be attained, and it's getting in the way of actually looking at what we're, what we're really doing, and the genuine results of what we're doing. This process of fabrication that actually is prior to our sensory input comes in three forms. Um, the first form is physical fabrication, which is the breath. You, know, you shape your experience of the body by how you breathe. Now, for most of us, never thought of it. You know, there's a way you can train yourself to breathe that would lead to more or less happiness. But this is one of the whole purposes of the breath meditation: is to find that certain ways you breathe will lead to a greater sense of ease and well-being in the body will have an impact on the feelings you're feeling, will have an impact on what's going through your mind. Um, and so that you should bring more awareness to this process of physical fabrication, i.e. the in and out breath. The second form of fabrication is something called directed thought and evaluation. In other words, where you're focusing your thoughts and what you're saying to yourself about where you're focused. Now different people could come into this room and they'd be seeing all kinds of different things. You know, someone with a fashion background would be coming in and kind of rating, okay, what are all the outfits look like right now? And that's what they would direct their thoughts to, and then, then they'd, they'd evaluate, you know. You know no taste whatsoever.
someone else could come in and they'd be spending all their time focusing on you know the dust up in the up in the upper corners over there. Um, some people would be focusing on the acoustics of the room. It depends on you know, what are you interested in. That's where you focus your attention. That's your directed thought, and that's going to make a huge impact on exactly what you're experiencing as you come in here. Um, also, your standards for evaluation. What would be a, you know, a good standard for judging the fashion of the, the, the attire here today? Um, someone might notice that the monk's outfit is color-coordinated. Um, <laughs> see? It's all brown. <laughs> Other people might be saying, come on, it's a Saturday morning, nobody has to dress up for a Saturday morning Dharma class, okay? So again, your standards for evaluation would, have to, would tend to be different. The third form of fabrication is mental fabrication, and these are your feelings and perceptions. The feelings are feeling tones of pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain. And perceptions are the labels you put on things. And when you see a person, you say person. When you see a clock, you say clock. When you see a sign, you say sign. Um, and sometimes your, your perceptions are verbal, and sometimes they're images. I mean, the images, you know, you, you, you see somebody and all of a sudden, in the back of your mind, there's this image, you know, monster. <laughs> Another person you see an image of and say, oh, see, someone's really sweet. No, no danger at all. A lot of this has to do with your, your lizard brain and its reading of the situation around you. But this is basically how the mind communicates with itself, with these little images, how it perceives the situation. Um, this is one of the reasons when the Buddha is teaching he has so many analogies and images that he has, as you think about, because that gets deeper into the mind than just the verbal part. So these are the three kinds of fabrication you're bringing to any situation. Um, the way you breathe, your thoughts, the directed thought and the evaluation that you're engaged in, your internal conversation about it. And then the internal conversation, in turn, is informed by these perceptions you're holding. If you were to think of this in linguistic terms, perceptions would be individual words, and directed thought and evaluation would be more full sentences that you're making out of, out of the words. And this is what you bring to any experience. And so, for the purpose of finding happiness, you want to learn how to bring skillful habits of fabrication into the present moment. Now, this is going to be related to the whole issue of the Brahma Viharas, is because the way you approach a situation if you approach it seeing all beings as potential enemies, it's going to be impossible to develop goodwill. But if you have different ideas about what happiness is, in other words, you're going to be fabricating, thinking about things in a different way and holding different perceptions in your mind, then it will be a lot easier to have goodwill for all beings. And this is how your head and your heart work together. The thinking that you have will change your emotions, and then your emotions well, the feelings you have will, in turn, change your thinking. Any questions about fabrication? Because this is going to be central to the whole rest of the day. And I want you to keep in mind, while we're sitting here talking, we're going to be engaging, all of us are engaging in verbal and mental fabrication. This is part of the training, hopefully, that you know, goodwill will be easier when you walk out the room at the end of the day. Jim? So, I um, <clears throat> just want to go back to your comment that only karma determines our experience or our fabrications. Um, there's the, the Sivaka Sutta and the Samyutta Nikaya that says other factors determine what happens to us. I think they list bile and phlegm, climate, accidents, 
um, and karma's on that list too, but yeah. mm -hmm. it, it, it seems like it's not so black and white in terms of what determines well, again, our experience. If you, if you look at, there's another sutta, and I've forgotten the name of it, but where the Buddha talks about the fact that you have a body is past karma. If you didn't have that body, you wouldn't be subject to bile and phlegm and accidents and these other things. So you've got the karma is there in the background. Well, he's talking to that particular guy, Siwaka. That list of factors he gives for how we feel pleasure or pain comes from the medical texts of that time. That was an analysis. You know, if you were a doctor then, you would say, let's, let's check for your phlegm, let's check for your bile, let's check for your wind forces in your body. Have you had any accidents? Have you been mistreating your body? And I don't know, if, I don't know any Western doctors who do this, but in Thailand, um, they actually keep in mind the fact that this person may have some really bad karma and I can't really cure the guy. Um, it's not officially on any of the sort of diagnostic <laughs> lists. But every doctor I know in Thailand has that in the back of his mind, or her mind. That, you know, sometimes I've got a, a patient here whose karma is such, I can't, the, the disease is untreatable. And so they were recommended to the patient, why don't you go out and make some merit? <laughs> why don't you meditate? You know? So he's talking to somebody, and the person was saying that everybody, he, he'd been talking with the Jains, and the Jains said all things come, not just from karma, they said from past karma. And the Buddha's taking into consideration, no, there is your present karma. And so when you look at that sutta in the context of other teachings on karma, you realize okay, everything in that sutta is either a result of past karma or present karma. So that it is this combination of what you experience does come from past karma plus your present karma, your present intentions plus your, the results of your present intentions in shaping it all, all together. So then, with the uh, this innate quality of, uh, that there is no innate quality of mind, uh, what about uh, from the Anguttara The mind is luminous except for visiting defilements. Okay, that the luminosity of the mind is, is his ability to know, to be aware of things. There's nothing nothing about it being innately good or innately pure. And John Mahabhava has a really good statement a passage on that. He's got a whole Dharma talk that the the radiant mind is unawareness. So that even when the mind is radiant, there's still a lot of ignorance going on there. But what, it, what it's referring to is the fact that you can know your actions, you can know when you are defiling the mind, and you can do something about it. And when, you, when the mind has been defiled, it's not permanently stained. That's what that passage is saying. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about... Um, the development of these fabrications, for example... That's like the whole rest of the day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're doing. Okay. So, but essentially what you have to do is develop okay, how you breathe, how you're thinking about a situation, the perceptions you're bringing to a situation. And this is what a lot of the Buddhist teachings on how to develop goodwill are all about, rethinking the situation. So you don't feel it found, feel it found yourself... One, you don't find happiness in the wrong way. And that's a really important one. Um, I had a woman call me one time. She was a student of a Tibetan teacher. And she was having some problems with her landlord. Her landlord was trying to sell the place, and he wanted all the tenants to lie about the amount of rent they'd been paying. And so he was going to them one by one by one and asked them to sign a sheet. And she didn't know what to do. 
And she said, I've been spreading goodwill to him. I've been envisioning him with a big house and a swimming pool, you know, and a couple mistresses and all this other stuff. He said, no, 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 this is wrong, this is wrong. <laughs> if you have goodwill for the guy, you think, may he be virtuous, may he not try to make people lie. Um, you think of him doing good things rather than just having some wealth up there on Pacific Heights or something. Um, and then secondly, get together with the other tenants and say, no, we are not going to sign this sheet, you know. So, so you uh, have to have an idea. What, what is your, how do you visualize happiness? So these fabrications are then um, developed in different, say, percentages for each individual based mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. their past karma. Yeah, past, I mean, past some, past will, yeah. some will be, um, have very, maybe, strong directed thought and evaluation, but have no body awareness or something, mm-hmm. or their um, mental fabrication will be hazy or some other kind well, of mix. You, well, you, Everybody does all three of them, but a lot of them are done unconsciously. Okay. You, know, you carry certain ways of looking at the world around with you, and sometimes you're aware of what you're doing, and many times you're not aware at all. And what we're trying to do in all cases is make you more aware of all three kinds. Okay. So that today is to, to become more aware of all three, and right. then make more, uh, more and more skillful choices right. in each of these areas. Right. Right. Yes, get the, get, get, get the mic over there. I haven't heard the term present karma used before. Could you say a little more and distinguish past karma and present karma? Okay, present karma are your, your intentions right now. And particularly, the, it starts with your intention of how you're shaping the raw material of your experience and what you want to do with it, what direction you want to take it in. And it's actually... And this is one of the problems when we think about karma, is that when the Buddha was talking about karma, that was the main point that he kept emphasizing, is what you're doing and thinking right now, as opposed to the past stuff. And the past stuff is something you can't do much about, but you can change your intentions right now. And that's where he's focusing his intentions. If nothing else, that's one of the best things to take back with you today. <laughs> you move that mic down here. One question about perception um, and uh, feelings as you're talking about them. So, um, uh, you were saying how we can actually fabricate our own perceptions as well, and, and the question about that. So. So it seems to me, sanya, or just perce- perceiving something right away, it happens based on the pre- uh, preconditions that the mind already has. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something that naturally arises from already the state that the mind is in, but it seems like you're talking about also changing perceptions, which maybe is another level on top of that. So can you clarify okay, that? But it's, you know, the word perception in English is a difficult one because it has two meanings. One is just the fact that you're taking in data, and the second one is that you're giving a name to it. You perceive a dog where there's this, you know, pattern of whatever. Um, and we're talking about the second sense of how you look for things in a particular location. Um, and it can be trained. It's, it, you know, the images that you're holding around in your mind, um, many times they're, they're, they're there and we're not really consciously aware of them until we become consciously aware of the fact that this is causing me suffering. In other words, because you yourself see that or somebody else points it out to you. And then you've got to consciously sit down and say, no, I've got to reprogram things. 
and this and, and a lot of this happens, you know, the myths that people like to hear or have heard from childhood, um, the stories that they were raised with, um, their parents' attitudes towards the world, those are in their perception. The own, you know, their own things that they picked up from their experience. Going to school, you know, I was hit in the head by a swing, my, I think my second day in school. For me, recess was a dangerous time from that point on. Um, that kind of thing. And so again, you have to, un sometimes you have to unlearn them. And you can sit people down, this is what the talking cures are all about. Sit people down to kind of figure out, okay, what are the, what are the perceptions you're bringing? Maybe we can rethink these. Yes? How do you know, what evidence do you have that you have unlearned or reprogrammed them versus repressing the ill will or the, the perceptions that aren't useful? Okay. Meditation is important here to, to, to see the difference between when something is repressed and when it's simply a committee member you say no to. I mean, repressing is basically pretending it's not there and pretending that you, you, know, pretending that you don't know that it's there. Whereas simple suppression is saying, I know it's there, but I'm not going to follow it. And a lot of that has to do with your attitude towards the unskillful members of your mind. If you feel that your identity is threatened by admitting to yourself that there's something unskillful in there, you will tend to repress. Whereas if it's, you it's okay to recognize, hey, there's something unskillful in here, but I don't want to follow it. And that's healthy suppression. And the meditation, because it makes you more alert to what's going on in the mind and the so the backroom committee meetings <laughs> that are going on. And you can, you can see things, okay, so here's something, I, I know it's there. And developing the attitude, okay, it's okay for unskillful thoughts and unskillful things to come up, but we're not going to let them take over, hold, hold my mind hostage, okay? When you're an experienced meditator, do you have fewer unskillful thoughts in the first place? Um, yeah, but and and the way you can say it, you know that is because you've gotten really thoroughly acquainted with your mind, and you've seen how really nasty it can be, <laughs> and you say this is no surprise. <laughs> yes, is that Mike near Don here? Ajahn, you included Vedana. Feeling tone in the category of perceptions. Can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between sanya and vedana and the shifting of vedana in particular? Okay, um, the vedana is your feeling tone, and that's one of the things that's going to have an impact on your mind. Now, what's going to have an impact on your on your feeling tone? The way you breathe. So, if you can breathe in a comfortable way, that will that will help with the actual feeling tone itself. And it you know, can create some positive associations with certain perceptions. Now, and the other way around, of course, is that you've got lots of different potential feelings here, and your choice of which one is an important one to focus on is going to be based on your perceptions. And you, you see a certain stirring in your body, and some people would have that stirring and say, I've got to have a drink. Other people would see a certain stirring in the body and say, I've got to do some breath meditation. In fact, a lot of this is based, again, on the past choices you've made and how you associate that particular feeling potential with, a, with an activity or an event. And so this is why when you're, when you're training someone who's an addict, you've got to say, let's develop some new habits. 
and realize that you've got some alternatives. Is this a process you also tie to the cultivation of metta and the other Brahma Viharas? Well, exactly. If there are certain people that you ha- feel strong ill will for, you've got to step back and say, okay, what's the feeling that rises up in me as I see this person? And then how can I perceive that feeling differently so I don't have to go and punch them? (laughs) Okay, we have first issue of sort of reprogramming your thinking and your perceptions is understanding happiness in the light of karma. Okay. Okay, basically there are Two types of happiness. There's happiness which is dependent on conditions, and there's happiness which is independent of conditions, which can be found through the path. Now, the Buddha teaches the path to both kinds of happiness. Um, the conditional one, of course, is the one that's going to be less reliable when you get there. But he does not discourage people from acting in ways that would create a better situation in life, just sort of on an everyday basis. However, he wants you to keep in mind the fact that there is this higher level of happiness, and so you don't just settle for being a comfortable person in the Bay Area with a nice, you know, you know, you know you've got your practice and you've got your, all the other aspects of the life that the human potential movement wants you to develop. There's more. <laughs> so it's possible to think that way. One thing that's very important is it's possible to think that if happiness is a product of what people are bringing to an experience, it is possible, as I said earlier, for people to find true happiness in a way that doesn't conflict with other people's true happiness. Because it's all a matter of what's coming from within. And if happiness had to depend on nice things coming from outside, there's only so much. And you've got, and, and the fact of looking for happiness in, in the tr- in ordinary worldly ways, the, the traditional list is you know, material gain, status, praise, and physical pleasure. That, those kinds of happiness create divisions. You know, somebody gets the gain, somebody else has to lose. Someone else gets that particular position at work, other people have to lose, you know, be deprived of that. Whereas the happiness that comes from within is something that doesn't create conflict. It actually erases a lot of boundaries. And also, happiness is not a zero-sum game. That many ways, by looking after your own true well-being, you're actually being helpful to other people and looking after theirs. There's the, the analogy, and this is a good perception to hold in mind, of acrobats. One acrobat on the other acrobat's shoulders. And the, the, the teacher who's on the bottom, he says to the woman up on top, he says, now go, you look out after me and I'll look out after you and we'll come down safely from the bamboo pole. They would put a bamboo pole vertically and stand on top of that and do their tricks. And she said, no, that's not going to work. I have to look out after myself, you look after yourself, and that way we'll protect each other and come down from the pole. Now, th- if you think of things in terms of a balance like this, you know, she's not going to be able to maintain his balance, he can't maintain her balance, but if each of them maintains balance, it's going to be easier for the other person to maintain balance. So in this way, that in your search for true happiness, it's actually conducive to other people's true happiness, too. Hold that perception in mind so that you don't keep thinking of happiness as a zero-sum game. It also, however, means that you have to realize that what people are experiencing, if it's dependent on past karma, present karma, mixed together, there are certain things in a person's past karma you cannot change. You can't change anybody's past karma. Where you can be of help is helping them in their present karma. 
So when you're thinking about goodwill for other beings, this is what you're looking for. What can I do to help them with their present karma right now? What would be conducive? Now, in some cases, it is providing them with food, providing them with just basics of, you know, basics of survival. And beyond that, it has to do with your interactions with them, how you treat them. There's that great um, column that Miss Manners wrote several years back, and she says, Miss Manners has the solution to the crime problem. He says, you, you talk to all these criminals, and what do they say? They ain't giving me no respect. Now, if we learned some respect, <laughs> we'd have less crime. <laughs> and she, has, she, has, she had a good point. You know. It's how you treat people. They gain a different sense of what human beings are like, based on your, on your, on your interaction with them. So it's important to keep in mind that people's happiness, genuine happiness, really depends on their present karma. Past karma will have a has have a limiting effect, limit, limiting effect on that, but it also op opens some potentials. Um, in particular, let's think about how each of these four Brahma Viharas um, is is um, affected by that. One, um, in terms of metta, there's no question of anyone's deserving happiness or suffering. And the univet analysis is not the person; it's the actions. Actions have consequences. But just because someone has passed bad karma doesn't mean they have to suffer. And the Buddha gives the example of someone who's totally developed the mind. And then here's an image, which is good perception to keep in mind. The image is of a broad river full of clear water. You throw a big lump of salt into the river, you can still drink the water. Because there's just so much more water than there is salt. If you took that same lump of salt and put it in a little cup of water, the water would be undrinkable. Now the river of water here stands for a state of mind which has developed the Brahma Viharas and which has also developed an ability not to be overcome by pleasure or pain. If you have that kind of expansive mind, or can help other people develop that kind of expansive mind, they're going to suffer less from whatever past bad karma they may have. So you're not going to question them, you know, are you deserving of my compassion? Because, you know, if you have bad past karma, I don't want you. Anyone who has compassion like that should be thrown out. You know. <laughs> and when people say that the teaching on karma is, is harsh and impersonal and cruel, that's, they don't understand it. It's if you say, okay, I'm only going to be compassionate to people with totally good past karma, your compassion is not worth anything. You're, you have to have compassion for everybody, regardless of their past karma. So if, you know, if everybody were truly happy, the world would be at a better place for everybody. You know, so if you're, you're truly happy, you're less of a burden on other people. As for compassion and empathetic joy, when you're looking at other people, you see someone suffering. This gets into this issue of, you know, should you have compassion for them? The person who's suffering right now, you don't know their total karmic history. I mean, some people think that we have one karma account, and what we see right now in other people is their running balance. But that's not the case. <coughs> The, the Buddha's image here, and again, here's an image to hold in mind, it's like a field full of all kinds of seeds. Some of the seeds are not going to sprout for a while, other seeds are ready to sprout with a little bit of water, and others are already sprouting. Some have sprouted and no longer bear, bear, bearing any fruit. And so what you're seeing right now are the sprouting seeds. You don't know which of the seeds could sprout with a little bit of water. But a little bit of kindness and a little bit of compassion, you can, that you can actually help those other person's seeds sprout. 
And it's the same with you. You don't know what your own potential is right now. You, you, you know, we can't see our karmic past, but we know that, okay, if I'm ever in trouble based on some past bad karma I've got, if I've been kind to people now, that will help alleviate, you know, sort of balance things out. So you've got this unknown in terms of past karma, but what you can see is potentials for you to be helpful to other people when they need it. Think of that in terms of an opportunity. This is one of the reasons why compassion is not condescending. Another perception the Buddha has you hold in mind. When you see somebody who's really, really suffering, remind yourself, you have been there. And whatever karma was involved in that, you've done that karma too. So, you know, you're, we're dealing with people who are just sort of, as, 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 as the Thai says, you know, our companions in aging, illness, and death. We've all had a good, you know, we've got lots and lots of, you know, up and downs in our karmic history. And so when you see someone who's suffering from at the moment, karmic seeds that are sprouting, you don't look down on them because they're suffering. You see this, here's an opportunity for me to be helpful. This also helps to allay feelings of jealousy for people who have it better off than you. Okay. They're not going to be there forever. <laughs> um, and th then the question comes up, you know, suppose you ever get it, make it really nice and comfortable someday, do you want other people to be jealous of you? You say, well, a little bit, but no, you don't want people. <laughs> it doesn't serve any purposes. Okay. So you're not threatened or diminished by other people's happiness. Hold that in mind, because, because of the karmic complexity of things. And finally, in terms of equanimity, there are limitations on your ability to change things when you're dealing with past karma. Okay. And equanimity also saves compassion from burnout. But you see, there are certain things that you just cannot help, but you have to say, look, I can't help that. And then you can focus instead on areas where you can, can be involved, so that you don't waste your time and energy banging your head against the wall. So again, you, equanimity and goodwill are things that you have to learn how to apply when appropriate to a particular situation. And the equanimity is simply a recognition that there are a lot of things in the world we can't change no matter how much we want to. So we say, okay, I can't, if I can't change that, where can I change things for a good purpose? So these are some of the reflections that just keeping karma in mind teaches us about, well, what it means to have goodwill. What, is, what does it mean to have empathetic joy? What does it mean to have compassion? Any questions on that before we break for lunch? Yes. Here, let's have somebody new. <laughs> You, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned creating good karma as a motivation for um, helping others. Mm -hmm. And I find usually when I do something kind for someone else, uh, karma has no like impact on my decision to do anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I do it out of a sense of just wanting to help and not considering the repercussions for myself. Mm -hmm. um, any thoughts on <laughs> Well, it's um, someplace down in your mind, there's part of you that says, I'm going to benefit from this one way or another, even if it just f I feel better doing that. And that, that's, a good, that's a good motivation right there. Um, now, if you're saying, okay, I want you to come back and be my nurse in the next lifetime, that's not helpful. <laughs> 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 but it, it, it's good to 
I think part of the problem is, you know, there's that Christian teaching when your right hand does good, don't let, let the right hand not know what the left hand is doing. In other words, don't let yourself feel good about the good that you've done. And that creates a lot of miserable people. And the Buddha says, you know, appreciate the times when you have been good, so that when you start feeling tempted to do something that's not quite so good, remind, remind yourself, you know, I really would feel better if I didn't do that. You know, I really would feel better if I was being more generous. And that helps to, and you recall the times in, you, in the past when you have allowed yourself to feel good about doing something good. And that gives you more of an impetus, more energy. And also it helps to, helps to prevent the burnout when you do something kind to somebody else and they, you know, they treat you in a horrible way. Show no gratitude whatsoever. You say, okay, I'm obviously not going to get the good karma back from that person, but just it's out there in the world now. Anything else? Yes. So, um, in terms of English definitions of metta, mm -hmm. most common in this um, tradition, shall we say, uh, in, in, in the English language, is loving kindness. And... Um, the kindness part on there seems to mitigate a little bit that kind of love, you know, is a loaded term. And I, I just um, wonder what you think about uh, that definition. Or another one we hear a lot lately is friendliness um, as a definition of, of metta. Friendliness is being a little bit too literal. Too what? Too literal. Because, I mean, the word mitta in Pali is friend. And metta would be a quality of a friend. Um, but I think, you know, when we think about somebody being friendly, they come up, hi, how are you, you know. And we're here we're talking about actually wishing for other people to be happy. Now, many times that means, okay, I'm not going to have anything to do with that person. You know, the story about the snake is, I, I tell that because I've had that many, many times with snakes. And we have rattlers down at Wameta. And there was one evening in particular, I remember, I... You know, after a while, you get to recognize the sounds of animals as they go over the leaves. You know, and there's the, the bug sound, and there's a little lizard sound, and there's this long <laughs> snake sound. And so I opened my eyes, and sure enough, there was a big rattler coming up the, the hill. And I said, okay, um, goodwill to you, rattler, but please don't come here. <laughs> and that's not quite loving kindness. You know, can you, may you be happy wherever you go, but leave me alone, okay? <laughs> And that counts as metta as well. But, th but that would seem like loving kindness because the kindness is, you know, if, if you two have a confrontation, someone If I went up and hurt. petted it or something, it would not be, you know, it would feel threatened. <laughs> yeah, but you have kind thoughts in your heart for that snake, and, you know, even though you want it to go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't see how loving kindness wouldn't apply to that situation. Well, I'd say kindness. I don't really love rattlers. But <laughs> I prefer goodwill because it really gets down to the point that okay, you're wishing for their happiness. And you can have goodwill at a distance and you can have goodwill without getting involved with other people. And you can have goodwill for people you re really intensely dislike. Well, and it fits for the opposite being ill will, you yeah, know, which is a common translation. Yeah. Of mm -hmm. Like there are certain politicians right now that I would, you know... Um, so, okay, got to have goodwill even for this, okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm certainly not going to like their policies, but 
and say, okay, we don't want, we're not here to get other people. You, know, you don't want to visualize them, you know, having their heart attacks and, or whatever. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, so the point of karma seems really important in context of Brahma Viharas. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, like, say when I see someone and I have tremendous ill will for that person mm -hmm. and say I define that that's probably coming from my karma mm -hmm. how much sort of control or ability do I have in my present to transform that okay this is what the contemplations are for you see somebody that you really have ill will for and you say one what am I going to gain from that person's suffering you say quite a lot of satisfaction. Say, no, this is not a healthy satisfaction. And you sort of reason with yourself as to, if I have ill will for this person, and I have to have dealings with this person, how can I trust myself around them? And if I want to influence them in a way, let's say we have to have, we have, to have a meeting about something, somebody at work, say. We have to have a meeting, I have to come to an agreement. If I'm bringing ill will into the meeting, he's going to sense it. I've got to do something about that. So I've got to sit and think, okay, this person probably means well, he has some certain good qualities, and if he has no good qualities whatsoever, you have to feel sorry for him. And so if part of that is taking you out of the perception that you're being victimized by him, because that has a lot to do with this, so the, the ill will is that this person's being around here, I don't feel safe. And so I'm not a victim. Even if he mistreats me, I can... I can protect myself, or there are other ways that I can still maintain my own inner, inner, inner calm. That way I don't have to feel threatened by that person. So it's a combination of the meditation and then just sitting down and sort of thinking the issue through. Saying, okay, you don't have to like him, but if you go in and think, okay, may you be happy, may, may this come out well, I'm, I don't want to harm you, but we've got something we've got to agree about here. And so this is, what, it's not so much loving kindness, I just don't want, wish you ill. And then very you know that part of your mind has the ill will, but say, okay, that's influence from past karma. I don't have to give in to that. I can reason with it. And if they say, but the guy is awful, okay, even awful people have some good qualities. I mean, their dogs love them, so they must have something good, you know. <laughs> whatever, whatever you can think of. Yeah. And so there's, because if you just go in, well, this is the way I feel about this person. If we take your feelings as a given, then you're done for. But if you say, even my feelings are fabricated, and sometimes the issue may not be that person. This person may remind you of somebody else, and your real issues are with the other person. And say, how would I like it if I was going around in a world where everybody's issues you know, were treating me based on issues they had with other people? It's not fair. You know? So you learn how to sort of think your way through. And it's a lot easier to think your way through when the breathing is calm and comfortable. This is why the... So it's not just a mental exercise, but you're actually trying to embody, embody that sense of well-being. So, if I understand this correctly, would you say that uh, the amount of time you spend wallowing in ill will mm -hmm. with practice decreases? So yes. maybe it mm -hmm. might be a month or a mm -hmm. day, or maybe for some people, like a fraction of a second, they right. might have ill will and mm -hmm. it might get transformed into... With, with practice, yes, it, the, the amount of time gets reduced. 
But it's important that we, again, realizing the importance of present karma. Just because you've got a lot of past bad karma or past bad habits this way, doesn't mean you have to give in to them. Because you've got, you've got, you say, okay, there are these, these past bad habits, but I've also got some past good habits. Let's bring the good habits over and influence the bad ones. Thank you. Um, so this, um, this field analogy that, that the Buddha uses um, is quite a daunting one. Mm-hmm. And um, you had mentioned that the Buddha taught this path um, that we could develop the mundane pleasures or the, the spiritual, super-mundane mm-hmm. pleasures. Um, does he indicate anywhere in the canon that, um, for example, following the path, um, developing the connections with the Four Noble Truths will, by and large, eradicate more of that or, or suppress more of those seeds in the field so than... Suppress, it's just that when they come up and your mind is a lot more developed, you're going to hardly notice the bad ones. They're not going to have that much of an impact on the mind. And you don't have to settle your old karma ledger before you go. So, so how is it, I guess that's, in essence, you know, we, we have a lot of choices to make in life. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, it could be as simple as, well, I can do an extra hour of meditation or I can, you know, go do some gardening. Mm-hmm. I mean, both will, will have some, some benefit and some goodness, but mm-hmm. is there something to, to know, well, how do I balance? I mean, is always the choice to say, Put forth the, the practice, or do you want the algorithm? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if there one exists, <laughs> you have to ask yourself, what do I want out of life? So it does come down to that. Yeah, because mm-hmm. the Buddha is not placing any right. imposition on you. He says, if you want happiness, this is what you got to do. Then okay. you have to ask yourself, how seriously do I want happiness, and how fast? So. So basically, every moment that you do want to apply this will be beneficial towards that right. higher goal. Yeah. You don't have to do it, but if you, if you want that, it's there. you'll do yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember that the Buddha never defines happiness. This is one of the interesting things about his teachings, is that you know, some, term, some basic term, the dukkha, is never defined. Stress, suffering is never defined. Happiness is never defined. Mind is never defined. And, and you know, if, if you're trying to build a system of thought, of course, you know, your basic principles will never get defined. But this is something different. Your sense of what constitutes dukkha is going to change as you work on the path. Your, const- your sense of what constitutes happiness is going to change. Your sense of what your mind is and how it function, can function is going to change. So the terms are not pinned down. Which is, I mean, when you're translating sukha, which is the word for happiness in Pali, you've got Happiness, pleasure, ease, well-being, bliss, all of those things. So as you refine and change and, and develop the path more, yeah. mm-hmm. those refinements will change your right. ideas of what, what that happiness is that I am pursuing. Yeah. I mean, it's like when I was a kid, I thought Hostess, Cupcakes, and Twinkies were just the best thing you could do with your money, you know? And now I can't even conceive eating them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I guess we've got a break for lunch. So we'll meet here at 1. Mm. Okay. Uh,
couple announcements. There's a lot of people here.